Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Why download the app? Because life is messy. We get stressed, anxious, have trouble sleeping, we work too hard, we deal with conflict, our hearts get broken, we worry about the state of the world. We meditate because we're human. Our app gives you hundreds of meditations from over 30 leading experts. It helps a lot. And if you haven't tried the app yet, you can now try it for free and explore a starter series plus a sample of some of our favorite guided meditations in the Discover Collection. You may also want to check out our new meditation collections this year. Mindful eating, work, authentic leadership, and a special collection just for college students. There's also a new mindful work and sleep basics course. If you've already got the app, check out our new unguided meditation timer where you can create your own meditations with or without our brand new, pretty amazing music tracks. And don't forget the eight free meditations on Alexa. Just ask her to enable Meditation Studio. Today's guest is Elise Bellew, an Australian entrepreneur and doctor trained in psychiatry. She's also the best-selling author of a book called The Happiness Plan, and she's founder of Mindful in May, an online mindfulness program starting May 1st that teaches thousands of people around the world to meditate. It's a one-month online program that brings together top meditation teachers, mindfulness experts, and neuroscientists to help people kickstart or deepen their meditation practice. And the good news is you really just need to spend 10 minutes a day with her Mindful in May meditations. And you can even supplement the program with the meditations you already have on Meditation Studio. A beautiful part of her program is that it also raises funds to build clean water projects, primarily in Africa. Elise shares her passion for mindfulness and for supporting individuals and organizations to develop tools for greater emotional and mental resilience and well-being. I love when she talks about upgrading our inner technology to help meet the increasingly complex demands of the time we're living in. She's quite amazing. Now, here's Elise. Elise, it is so exciting to have you on Untangle today. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background. I know that you trained as a psychiatrist, as an MD. I want to really understand your background before we dive into the mindfulness program. From a very young age, I was always fascinated with the human brain and the mind and really asked myself a lot of the big questions. Why are we here? How can we live the most meaningful, happy, fulfilled lives? Because we only have one of them to live. And this took me on a very big journey and it ended me up in medicine and psychiatry because I figured, how could I learn as much as possible about the brain? So I ended up in psychiatry and Along the road while studying psychiatry, although I learned an incredible amount about the brain and how it all works and really got experience in managing humans at some of the most challenging times, at some point I started to become a bit disillusioned because what I really wanted to understand was not just how to help people survive, supporting them to come off the brink of suicide or 
very significant mental illness, but I actually wanted more than that for people. I wanted to take them there and then I wanted them to go from surviving to thriving. And what I felt was missing in my training was actually understanding how to support the brain and the mind to completely flourish. And so I stumbled upon meditation myself, probably, well, I was lucky. I had a mother that introduced me to it at a very young age, but I spent a lot of time reading books about meditation rather than actually sitting and doing the practice, which... (laughs) Another story, but it was not really until my own needs of finding a tool to manage my own stress, which is a pretty common story, I'd say, for most people in meditation, that I actually dived into it in a more committed, practical way. And that was also combined with the fact that as I was obviously in the world of medicine, and I'm a spiritual person, but very science kind of driven as well. And I went to a conference in the early 2000s and I heard Richie Davidson speak and Michael Merzenich, both two leading scientists in this field, as you would know. And I was completely blown away by the science. And this was sort of in the days where this whole paradigm shift around understanding neuroplasticity was a bit newer. It just completely opened me up to this path. And that's when I decided, you know, I have to take this meditation practice a little bit deeper. And I went and signed up to a silent meditation retreat. Actually, it was funny. My psychiatry boss at the time actually warned me. He said, oh, I've had patients that have gone on those things and lost their mind. And I was quite (laughs) frightened, to be honest. I think going to sit with yourself in your mind and in silence can be quite a confronting thing. But the reality of what I discovered on that retreat at the end of it was that I did lose my mind, but actually in the most positive way. (laughs) I lost the bits of the mind that are usually so unhelpful, like that inner chatter and constant going over things and all the things that many of your listeners would relate to. Absolutely. I want to just roll back the clock a little bit because you said something that always intrigues me, that when you were younger, you were always asking these really big questions like, why are we here? Where did that come from? I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) I'm always wondering why some people are so curious at a very young age. And I want to try and understand if that comes from a deep need within themselves or they're a little more soul connected. I was just wondering what you made of all those questions and did they make you anxious or did you just ask yourself these questions? I think it's something to do. I actually had a conversation recently with the wonderful Parker Palmer, who many of your listeners would know. He's actually one of the guests that are featured in this year's Mindful in May. And we were talking about soul and spirituality and he was sharing this idea and I agree very wholeheartedly with it that we don't come into this world as raw material to be made into something. We all arrive here with such unique sort of DNA and souls. And I think some people arrive and they've got a particular aptitude or curiosity for music. Other people arrive and the way their brains work, they're just wired to think about these things. I think it's possibly a personality kind of trait and just the way your mind works. And I think what I've discovered or noticed is that People like this. It's a double-edged sword, I think, because I think if you tend to be wired in a way where your mind is very active and you're asking a lot of questions, it has a darker side to it where you think a lot about things and that can be, that can take you out of the present moment. So I think in some ways it's not surprising that I ended up in meditation because I have this mind that does think a lot and is quite analytical and meditation is really helped me to learn how to use my mind to its 
greatest capacity to really, when I want to think analytically and creatively, I can allow my mind to flow like that. But if I'm in bed at at night and my mind is in circles of analysis about something, I now have a tool that really can help me. Again, it's not about stopping thinking, but it's shifting the attention and recognizing where I'm putting my attention and how I'm using my mind. And that's what I think is amazing about meditation. Yeah, I completely agree. And I I love what you were saying about you had trained to become a psychiatrist, but that you really wanted to further the learnings around not just surviving, but really thriving. And what do you see as this intersection of meditation and mindfulness with the mainstream medical world? How do you put these two worlds together in your programs or even in your thinking? I've found from my experience in teaching, so I go into corporates a lot and teach, and I think the fact that I bring the science and the spirituality or the the East and the West or however you want to put it, I think that really helps people to open up to the potential that meditation has. I think when you can integrate those two and when you go into a room and there's people that have never meditated before and you start talking and you've got the whole front row with their arms crossed in front of you. And yeah. you th- I mean, one time I went to a bank and I remember there was a front row of men sitting there with their arms crossed and I was thinking as I was talking, oh, this isn't really going down very well, is it? But then at the end, I was so surprised because a couple of these men came up and they said, we can't believe the science we've just heard because I shared a couple of favorite studies that I've come upon. I mean, there's more than a thousand a year that are coming out right now around mindfulness meditation, but the kind of science around that one day of meditation practice has been shown by Richie Davidson to actually change the expression of your genes that code for inflammatory proteins. And we know this is a very big risk for chronic illness. So these are very important studies that are coming out that are revealing the power of this practice or the other study, which was by Sarah Lazar from Harvard, who again is one of the many experts that are on the Mindful Made program, which looks at how the brain can change after a couple of months of meditation. If you put under rain scanner, you see these changes. So I think for us in the West, it's really powerful to have the science connected to the practice because we're all busy and we really need we need the evidence to help us get motivated to stick with these practices. And I think if you're lucky enough to just stumble onto the practice and you're committed and you do it, you'll very quickly discover the benefits for yourself. But for those who aren't in that situation, the science really does help us. We're going to get into the details about your particular program, but from the science that you've seen, do you think it's connected to a particular type of meditation or do you think just being able to sit in stillness and meditate regardless of the lineage can be helpful. I actually, it's a funny phenomena. I've noticed this phenomena happening in the meditation world where it seems that people that are doing different kinds of meditation from different schools are almost feeling like they have to kind of justify their particular school of meditation as being like the one that you should follow. I personally believe that all of the meditation that is on offer is just leading to the same place in a way, if it's being given by people that are actually very experienced in teaching. And I know that there's research about transcendental meditation, there's research about mindfulness meditation. For me, I've just happened to fall into mindfulness meditation and I just drink up all the science and the research and there is such a plethora of it. But I think that there's science to speak for different types. And I always suggest to people that you should try out different ones and see which ones resonate for you. 
Your book is called The Happiness Plan. Your program in May is called Mindful in May. And I want to have you talk to us a little bit about, this is a quote from you, I guess, mindfulness as a doorway to greater happiness and purpose. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I think that as humans, there's some things that we can control in the external world and there's a lot of things we can't. And as we know, going through this journey called being a human comes with a lot of challenges and a lot of inevitable losses and grief along the way. And so we really need to find a way to turn inwards and and build our inner resources to manage these external challenges that we're all inevitably going to face. And so that's how I see a really strong, profound connection between mindfulness, meditation and happiness. And this is from my own personal experience, but also through the thousands of people that have shared this with me through the program, through the Mindfully Made program. The mindfulness practice helps us to find greater stability, emotional strength, no matter what the weather of our outside world is looking like. It just gives us an inner resource to manage and to bounce back from those difficult times and difficult challenges. That's really how I see that connection. And I think that for many of us, it's our minds that really do add a lot of suffering, a lot of extra suffering onto things. And so if we can have a training that actually teaches us how to use our minds in a much more skillful way, then we're going to reduce that suffering a hell of a lot more. And I think mindfulness is really about, it gives us a greater clarity. It helps us see more clearly and recognize what are the things that are contributing to our happiness? What are the things that are contributing to our suffering and move us in the right direction? Yeah. And so you created the program. It's a challenge, if you will, right? Like a one month guide to help you really develop these inner resources and emotional well-being and really a guide to reduce stress and transform your life. How did you come up with this particular program? I know you have activities every single day. What was your thinking in terms of how you organize the program and how you think people will get the most benefit from it? As someone that had trained in psychiatry and psychology and understanding human behavior and how people can really transform, there was a sense of, okay, we know that meditation can be really hard for people to stick with and any new activity. So I was interested in creating a program that really helps people, takes them by the hand, gives them all the resources they need over a month period, which is enough to really create a habit for people. And It was actually my own journey. It was really like the idea actually came to me at the end of my psychiatry training. I was sitting in meditation one day and literally the idea popped into my head. And it was really an integration of three things that I felt very passionate about. Number one, mindfulness. Number two, community, because I think that community is key. And I've discovered this year after year. And this is what people are telling me about the program. It offers an interactive in real time, global community. And this really helps people stay on track. We love to be connected to each other. And so that's a really key component of, I think, why this program actually works. And then the third aspect was social impact. I'd traveled a lot in my 20s in West Africa and through various developing countries. And the issue of global poverty, it just hit me in the face so strongly. And I felt really despairing about it. And I felt like a little bit helpless. I can't really make a difference. You know, how can one person make a difference? It felt very futile. But I brought that into this program with the idea that Mindful in May is about 
signing up, doing something really powerful for your own well-being, and in the process through getting donated or getting sponsored to take this 10-minute a day challenge, you raise money to bring clean water to other people in developing countries. So the tagline I use is, it's a clear mind for you and clean water for others. And I think this aspect of the program is another element that really inspires people because they're not just doing it for themselves, they're feeling part of something bigger than themselves. And this is really important for us human beings. It really makes us feel happier when we're generous and we can give. And I think it's also a fundamental element of the practice of mindfulness meditation. As you practice more and more, you develop a greater sense of interconnection and interconnectedness with people in your life, with the world in general. And I think as your attention turns outwards rather than getting stuck internally, this supports your own happiness as well. So it's sort of a positive feedback loop and an upward spiral towards well-being and happiness, not just yeah. for you, but for those in the world who are really struggling to access one of our most basic needs, which is yeah. clean water. Yeah, it's so amazing that you've included that as a part of this program. You talked about the fact that the World Health Organization has said that depression is the leading cause of illness and yeah, global burden of disease. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit about that and how you think that mindfulness can help with depression and maybe even how you think this program can help with depression? That's a pretty frightening statistic because the WHO was actually predicting by 2020, it would be the leading cause of global burden of disease. And they've stated it now is the leading cause. That's pretty alarming. And I think that we're really living in unprecedented times at the moment and technology is exponentially developing and our brains need some support to manage these demands. We really need to think about how us humans can keep up with what's going on in the external world. And there's been a lot of research around mindfulness in the space of mental health. And there was a very famous study done. It was a randomized control trial around relapsing depression. So people that have had multiple episodes of depression and they put people in a two-month mindfulness program and they discovered that actually this program was as effective as maintenance antidepressants to reduce the rate of relapse of depression, which is pretty incredible. Pretty and incredible, I think a yeah. lot of people don't realize that because a lot of people have really taken on this completely biological view of depression and they don't understand that it's actually quite a complex illness. And yes, there is the whole biology of it. But for those people that want to try other ways of supporting themselves, I should put a caveat there and say for people that are not at imminent high risk of hurting themselves or hurting other people, there are options here and the science is really rigorous and speaks to the benefits. Then on the other hand, with anxiety, there's also been numerous studies around mindfulness and anxiety that have revealed that it really can help reduce the symptoms of anxiety. So I like to say that we upgrade our iPhones, we upgrade all of our external technology. We really need to think about how are we going to upgrade our inner technology to actually meet the increasingly complex demands of the time that we're living in. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it. So you've done this program for how many years now? It's relatively- This is going to be the fifth year. The fifth year. And so what are some of the changes that you've seen in the participants for the particular program? Do you continue to sort of evolve the program and make changes based on the yeah, results? So I've had so many people that keep going, coming back to the program. And when I designed it, the idea I had was like, it could be a global one month retreat for people. Mm -hmm. And I know for myself that I often 
before I've got a, a toddler, young daughter, but before I had a daughter, I used to go on regular silent meditation retreats. And I found that this was a real like reboot to my practice that reinvigorated my practice and it deepened my practice. So the idea for Mindful May is that it comes around each year and people can come back to it, even if they've done it before to kind of reboot their practice. And I found that that's really what happens each year. So as a result, I really try and create a new program to keep people inspired and to deepen their practice. And actually after last year, I started a follow-up program. So for people that sign up to Mindful May, I now have a six month and one year program where it's real time community. We do a live once a month guided meditation and there's an online community and that's just been incredible because I think that a lot of the things that are on offer like but I think the missing piece is community and it's incredible how powerful it is even to practice virtually but in mm -hmm. real time and have that opportunity to have conversations and to get your questions answered and in terms of your question around what benefits or how have people transformed I had one of Australia's most well-known comedians her name's Magda Zabanski she came on board as an ambassador for Mindful May she's done the program every year and she actually really gives it credit for finally getting her to practice every day regularly. And she gave me the feedback that said the thing that really helped her was that I really emphasize this message of self-compassion and being kind to yourself and realizing that we're imperfect as humans. And I think a lot of people struggle when they're trying to meditate. They feel like if they fall off track or they start to do it, if they've stop doing it, then they've failed and they get really hard on themselves. And the message that I infuse through the program is one of gentleness and kindness. And I think that that really makes a huge difference because it allows people to forgive themselves and not be so critical when they've fallen off track and just come back to it. So that was one example. And then each year, there are thousands of people that send me emails and tell me their stories. They're really so many. And I find that a lot of people sign up to the program who are in some kind of transition. So they're either like in a transition around their career and they're feeling stuck, or perhaps they've had a relationship breakup or a grief of some sort. And it's, it really helps them to shift through some of these really challenging moments in life. I think that's great. And you don't focus specifically on transition or these challenging moments, but kind of going through all of the teachings helps with the foundation for the practice. A hundred percent. Exactly. And I, I really make an effort to bring in different voices. So in the past, we've had like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and really all of the most incredible, inspiring teachers. And then there's the neuroscientists, so Richie Davidson and Sarah Lazar. So all of these leaders in the field to really bring in the different elements. And then of course, the wisdom and the poets. So Mark Nepo and Parker Palmer. So mm. I'll create an integrative program where you get the science, the wisdom, the poetry, and really practical tools of how to actually apply this in everyday life. So it's not simply about doing meditation and getting good at meditation. It's actually getting good at life. Right. And I love to take it starting in May because I haven't been through it before, but it sounds like it's very inspiring as well as giving you these tools to strengthen your emotional well-being, which is so critical. I have a few topics that come straight from the happiness plan that I just kind of want to throw out to you and have you talk about. So sure. one of the chapters is on mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And I know that's such a core to the mindfulness mm. practice. We mm. talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's an area that I feel really excited about because for me personally, I feel that that is really the biggest gift of mindfulness. And it certainly was the way that mindfulness really transformed my life. 
most significantly. As human beings, we are driven by our emotions. Our emotions, they send us on these roller coaster rides. And if you have a tool that can help you manage your emotions, that's going to transform your life. So mindfulness really helps you to be more aware of how you're feeling and what's going on from moment to moment so that you can respond to what's going on rather than act out of this old patterning that we have learned through our childhood that is quite unconscious. And so in that way, mindfulness really offers us greater freedom in our life because we no longer remain imprisoned by old templates and old ways of being. We actually have an opportunity to grow and discover new ways of being in relation to our emotions. I think for people that feel particularly sensitive or that get easily emotionally triggered, this is an extremely powerful practice. For me personally, it also offers this insight and this wisdom that you start to really viscerally know that emotions come and go and the impermanence of emotions and the ability to actually be with difficult emotions with much greater ease is really transformative. I love it when people first discover that their thoughts are not their reality um, and that they're not 100% truth because so many people believe that their thoughts are truth and you discover that they do change and they do pass. And so I think that's a great discovery from this practice. Absolutely. I write in the book, because I have a two and a half year old and we play a lot with bubbles. She's delighted and fascinated with bubbles. And I often, when chasing the bubbles, it occurred to me, I thought, this is a great metaphor. Like thoughts come and go in the mind like bubbles and they're really made of nothing, yet they have such an impact on our lives. And if you can develop a new relationship with your thoughts where you can actually observe them and not be taken off by them down these stories that are often not true, but that your mind is being such a compelling sort of almost advertiser that it's convincing you of these things, then you have so much more freedom and possibility in your life. That's really what I've seen as one of the most transformative aspects of yeah. mindfulness. I love and the way I, you And I actually that. think, I don't know, it kind of amuses me that we're born as humans and there's this really important lesson we need to learn about thoughts. And Now, luckily, meditation mindfulness is being introduced to young children, but why the hell haven't we been told this earlier? I know. It's like this giant secret. We don't learn these tools when we're young, and then it becomes so problematic as we get older. So it is kind of mind-boggling that we don't get these tools as children. Yeah. What about mindfulness for wise decision-making? I think that in our culture, we're very heady and A lot of us make decisions based, the energy is all in our heads. And when it comes to making difficult decisions, it becomes this analysis and analysis paralysis. And you really feel into what that deeper level of your being is saying. And I think with mindfulness, it really does help you to sense the body and the body has so much intelligence in it. You know, we talk about intuition and gut feelings. I think mindfulness really helps us to listen more deeply and hear those silent whispers more clearly so that we don't get so stuck in the head and the analysis, which really is often a reflection of fear, Mm -hmm. the, the worry and the anxiety thoughts. So I think it really does help us to drop into that intuitive space. And also on another level, sometimes 
decisions take time to become realized. So we need to actually sit in a space of discomfort while the decision is unfolding and while we're trying to make sense of it. And so mindfulness can be really helpful in helping us sit with uncomfortable emotional states, which can be, you know, when we're in the process of making a decision, whether that's, should we get married to this person? Should we leave our job? All kinds of things. So again, it's coming back to really how mindfulness then is a vehicle to greater resilience for for us to manage these difficult emotional states. Yeah, I love that you're talking about being able to sit in that space of discomfort because I think it's so easy to run from that space because it's just such a icky feeling. People do not want to stay there, but a lot happens when you can sit with that. So I I love the way you put that. I just wanted to add there on a very, very basic level as human beings, evolutionarily, like we're wired to move towards what's pleasant and right. move away from what's unpleasant. Yes. And unfortunately that works in the immediate term, but it doesn't work to our advantage all the time. And Pema Chodron talks about meditation as helping to build discomfort resilience. She calls it the ability to learn how to stay, which I just think is so fantastic. And whether it's for me, I'm a sweet tooth. I'm a real sweet tooth. And so sometimes I get caught up in a bit of too much eating sugar and I have to take a step back and go, you know what, I have to put the brakes on here. And I notice that discomfort, even in resisting to have chocolate or ice cream. And when you resist and you have an urge, you have to be with that uncomfortableness and mindfulness really helps with that. So there's been a lot of research around mindfulness and healthy eating and mindfulness with addictions, because again, to break an addiction, you have to be able to tolerate uncomfortable feelings. Yeah. I've heard the term urge surfing where you just stay with that and kind of ride those waves in order to get comfortable with it. I'm curious also about, you talk about mindful communication in relationships, and I am wondering, what do you do when you're emotionally triggered? When something, and I we hear this from a lot of the people that we interview, you can't let go. You're ruminating over and over again because of something that has triggered you and maybe in a relationship that's meaningful to you. What do you do in that situation? First of all, there's the mindful pause. So if there's a bit of mindfulness training and there's some capacity for awareness, then when you're in that particular emotional state, you actually get much better at sensing the emotion in that moment. So you can sense, wow, I'm really angry right now. And as soon as you can articulate that for yourself and name it, then you have already opened up a space to actually respond rather than be acting out of anger with no brain and no mindfulness. However, for many of us, it still happens to me, like I think even after decades of practice, you can really still get caught by that and you can fall into that emotional trigger and you can not have the capacity to actually put that pause in and take a moment to breathe. And so I think in that situation, it calls for self-compassion and forgiveness, you know, particularly if you're teaching meditation and you think to yourself, I should be better than this. Like I've been practicing for so many years. Shouldn't I be able to, you know, but you know what, we're just human and some things are really challenging. So it's about actually in those moments, recognizing I screwed up and I responded in a way that really wasn't my higher self and how I'm aspiring to be as a human. And that's when you bring self-compassion. But another practice that I really like in this context that I've found very, very helpful and the people that I've taught have also responded really well to it. And this is from Dan Siegel's work, which is the name it to tame it. Mm. And 
So you can do this through actually verbally or through writing. And so, for example, if you have a falling out or some kind of emotional trigger with your partner or someone in your family and it kind of doesn't go so well and you don't catch yourself, what you can do is after the event, take yourself into a separate room and actually journal. And you can use the RAIN process, which is that quite famous mindfulness practice of recognizing what's going on. So labeling, I'm feeling angry, A, accepting and allowing. So really actually allowing yourself to feel however you feel. I, investigating and really getting curious about what are the thoughts I'm telling myself? What are the stories? What am I believing? And then actually also bringing your attention into the body to unhook from these stories and the thoughts. And then N is non-identify or nurture with self-compassion. And If you write this process out, it actually helps your nervous system to soothe and calm the emotional state. So this is the name it to tame it. What we know is that the prefrontal cortex, which is the higher level of regulation for us, kind of has a power over the amygdala, which is where these emotional responses get triggered. And if we can activate the prefrontal cortex through using language, because it is that language center, then that sort of sends messages down to the amygdala and sort of calms it down, almost like a calm, compassionate parent would be calming down their child. So in that sense, we can be our own inner parent. I love the way you put that. What is, of all of the sort of days or programs that are a part of Mindful in May, what is the one that has had the biggest impact on you personally? It really is such a tough question because I just have to say that when you hear from someone like Richie Davidson about all of his cutting edge science, and then you move on to the next day and you hear from Mark Nepo and it's like a liquid gold that you're being bathed in and it's so inspiring and soulful. It's really hard to to choose. So yeah, I think it's just the whole journey. It's the whole journey. And is each day just 10 minutes or is it a 10 minute meditation and then the talks are longer? Yeah. So how it works is, so the invitation is to come on board the journey and commit to 10 minutes a day as a minimum. And that's kind of the challenge. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, so you get access to a whole online membership site, you get daily emails and during the week you get about three, four different meditations. And they're usually around 10 minutes to try and support that practice. I also offer longer ones for people that want to extend that or that are a bit more experienced. And then you get three to four of these video interviews that are specifically for Mindful in May with some of these leaders that cover different topics and how mindfulness supports resilience, how mindfulness can connect you to your purpose, all different topics. But what I'm really keen on is that at the end of the interviews, I really like to try and get practical, applicable ways of bringing these tools into your life. So it's not just about learning and getting the knowledge. It's actually about actioning it and seeing how it can impact upon your life. Sounds like an incredible program. And I hope many of our listeners will dive in. It starts on May 1st, correct? Yeah. People have to register before May 1st because that's when it actually starts. That's when it starts. Is there anything else that you want to share about the program that we haven't covered or even the book, The Happiness Plan that you think would be helpful? Yeah. Thank you for that. I think I'd just like to say a little bit more around the cause because it's something that I think is pretty horrendous that one in 10 people on this planet right now can't access clean, safe drinking water. I mean, apart from oxygen, so apart from breathing, water is our second most necessary basic need. And 
living in a world where we have driverless cars now mm-hmm. yet so yeah. many people on the planet are just disadvantaged in this way to me feels unacceptable that's not the kind of world i want to live in and so really this program it's a way to build resources for yourself but it's really a way for you to make a difference and i wanted to share that through the campaign we've brought clean water and transformed more than 15,000 people's lives forever so this that's is incredible And I think the most incredible thing is that it only takes $50 to bring clean water to one person for life because we're building water projects that these people can access, you know, forever, you know, and you think about what you spend $50 on in a day. And then you think that that money could actually transform someone's life forever in this really fundamental way. To me, it's like a no brainer. So you're signing up, you get to commit to doing something really good for yourself and making a contribution in the world. Yeah. It's a win for everyone. It's a win-win for everyone. I just want to congratulate you on all of this. This is such amazing work that you're bringing into the world. This is incredible. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. And I think for the listeners, Our mind is our greatest resource. It really contributes either to creativity or it makes us feel horrible and it can create depression. And so for me, I just think what could be more important than setting aside even just 10 minutes to optimize the way this mind is functioning in the world because it actually, it affects every part of your life. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to Elise for joining us today. She's really quite a force. To sign up for the Mindful in May program, go to mindfulinmay.org. It's a great way to build your daily habit. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email me at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.